Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Weekly Standard founder and editor-at-large, Bill Crystal. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. And um, we're going to pull back the curtain. We are not talking live. If you're listening to this podcast on Friday when it goes live, uh, keep in mind that we are recording it on Wednesday. You will be is celebrating the right word, Rosh Hashanah? Yes, Rosh Hashanah is a happy holiday. It's the new year. Uh, well, it's happy. But day, it's the days of awe, which are the 10 days that lead to Yom Kippur. So maybe cel- I think celebrating is an a- a- appropriate word. It ends in more reflective and somber mood, but that's appropriate for a holiday too. And uh, anyway, so I'm, yes, we're here on Wednesday afternoon and at the pace of uh, news and Trump world, by the time this thing goes up on Friday, uh, as the crystal clear podcast, I guess, always does, right? It, uh, uh, it could be totally overtaken by events, but I hope not. Trump's UN speech will still be his UN speech, right? Absolutely. And so and, hopefully yeah. this, these, this discussion won't be entirely in vain. So you were in New York for the much of this last week. Did you double park with all the other diplomats? I mean, it was I had to go up for a meeting on Sunday, so I was up from Saturday night. So I just got back a couple hours ago, uh, riding on the Acela, and it was crazy. I mean, New York's always crazy, uh, but the UN General Assembly week. I always try to avoid going to New York if I have like discretionary meetings to schedule. This was something I I couldn't get out of. I was participating in a panel discussion on Sunday. Um, and then I had some other work I had to do Monday and Tuesday. It's f- sort of fun. You see the motorcades going by, but mostly you have to just assume you can, you're can. you going to have to walk everywhere, so you want to stay off. A friend of mine came up. We had dinner last night. He took the train and got off at Penn Station, which is about 32nd Street, if you know New York Beautiful at all. Penn Station. Yeah, God, that's another discussion, right? <laughs> Once was beautiful, and Once they knocked was. it down. Yeah, right? one of the great years, crimes against 50, art and architecture 50-plus years ago, I know. Uh, and uh, he came there, and he's staying at a hotel in Midtown. It's a little over a mile. I normally would take a cab and uh, just took one look at the traffic, which was literally not moving. I mean, just total gridlock everywhere and walk. And so far as he could tell, in the 25 minutes or so it took him to walk the 20-plus you know, blocks, the traffic didn't move at all. So, I mean, I, if you have a police siren screaming in front of you, you can make your way through. But it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty grim. But I think by Tuesday, I think Monday, people were surprised. By Tuesday, my impression was, contrary to my friends' experience, that a lot of native New Yorkers and people who had just normal business in the city were just taking a day off and thinking they could do their deliveries and their other business businesses on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or later because it was really. Although, if you're insane. a real New Yorker, you're supposed to walk everywhere and feel really virtuous about. Well, if you're a real, everywhere. real New Yorker, you take the subway, of course. And the truth is, I grew up in New York and I know the subway, and I could have taken the subway once or twice. And you get out of the habit, you know, when you come back as a visitor and you have you take cabs or Uber these days. Um, but uh, I probably should have just gone underground. The subway in New York remains it's problematic at times, but it, it remains a pretty amazing feat of getting many, many, many people around a, a huge city pretty quickly. So one of the people who was in the city, although I doubt was taking the subway, was Donald Trump, who was right. in New York to address the General Assembly. Um, let's start on... A happy note, and looking at that speech, what was your favorite thing? What do you think was best in that speech? I thought the overall speech was was pretty good in the sense that it was a pretty recognizable for me, sort of Bush, McCain, Romney, tough foreign policy, but American leadership. He didn't blow up any of our alliances. He didn't commit us to trade wars. All the things that, from foreign policy, 
I'm most worried about uh, with respect to Donald Trump, I thought were muted. He still is who he is, so there's a kind of rashness and impulsiveness that is not great for a president. Like, you know, the insults are amusing if you don't like the, uh, the head of North Korea or the Iranian regime, and I don't like either, but probably a little counterproductive in the real world of diplomacy. Um, but not. You're, you're thought, talking about the rocket man. Yes. Uh, and uh, But look, I think he, uh, it was a, if you had, Read me that speech, give me the text of that speech eight months ago. And said this is what Donald Trump will say at his first UN General Assembly. I would have said, "Phew, it's pretty normal." And the left has gone crazy about it in a foolish way. Honestly, uh, conservatives I think have maybe overpraised it. The one thing Tom Donnelly and I just drafted an editorial that'll be in the issue, assuming everything goes fine for the next twenty-four hours, and it goes to bed tomorrow night uh, under your supervision, without the with the Jews staying home for Rosh Hashanah. But I, I trust you and Richard and everyone else can. Steve will make this work. The um, we were at editorial. We're, I mean, the stress on sovereignty, which is Trump's kind of thing. You know, he's a sovereignty guy. He's not a spreading liberty George W. Bush guy is, I think, ultimately self-defeating. I mean, American leadership is not just about uh, propping up every sovereign government in the world. It's also about advancing the cause of liberty. We ourselves deposed King George III, uh, even though his so- he was a sovereign. He, he had legitimate sovereignty. Not legitimate sovereignty, but he had sovereignty over the U.S. The, as, as we pointed out in the editorial, the question is, what about legitimacy? And that comes from consent to the governed. That doesn't mean that we have to go depose every sovereign that's not based on every state that's not based on consent of the governed. But a little, I could have used a little more of that vision. I, that remains a difference, I guess, I have with the Trump foreign policy. But at the end of the day, North Korea and Iran really are threats. I think a tougher stance than President Obama took is a good thing. Now, you tougher stances can backfire. Tougher stances have to be executed well. Tougher stances, you want to bring your allies along. So I think in both cases, Trump is... Um, I could end up in a better place than Obama, but honestly, we just don't know yet. But so much of foreign policy depends on the execution. Was there anything in the speech that really set your teeth on edge? Not that much. I didn't watch it, honestly, live, so I didn't see every one of the 42 minutes. I read through it. And um, no, I thought he, I mean, I could have done without this sort of, we recognize every nation's sort of, we want every nation to feel secure in their sovereignty, whatever he says, something like that. And, you know, the U.N. is an assemblage of sovereign nations. That's true about the U.N. I think the, the implicit critique of an Obama-like excessive faith in the U.N. on the road to world Global citizenship. Global, yes, so that was good to walk away from that. On the other hand, there are better and worse members of the U.N. It's not unreasonable to hope that uh, some of them will have regime change and maybe not just hope but work for that so that their people will run the countries. He sort of alluded to that in Iran, actually. I thought that was quite uh, one of the more eloquent parts of the speech where he would distinguish a la Bush, the Iranian people from the Iranian regime. I think that's very important for American presidents to do, as we always try to distinguish the Russian people from the Soviet regime. And the trouble with the sovereignty argument is it tends to collapse that distinction. It's just there's Iran. That's you know it's a sovereign nation. Who are we to say that they don't have the regime they that the people deserve? But we do need to say that the people deserve a better regime, both one that doesn't cause trouble abroad, but also one that doesn't oppress its own people at home. One of the things that I found to be a little odd, though, was when you hear Donald Trump talking about um, how when righteous people don't act against the wicked, evil thrives. You know, when George Bush, George W. Bush said things like that, it seemed natural. It came from someplace that fit with the man. Um, it sounded like his speechwriter wasn't writing to 
the president that he works for. He wasn't making Trump sound like the best possible Trump. He was putting words that sounded awkward in Trump's mouth. Maybe, maybe. I thought there were three or four speechwriters for this speech, and it did have the impression of being sort of cobbled together a little bit of Bush Republicanism, a little bit of Trump Republicanism, a little bit of just you know, normal conventional foreign policy establishment point of view. Um, and people can say it's a little, it is somewhat incoherent. But, you know, foreign policy is often somewhat incoherent, and it could have been worse. The other thing I did, do think that stood out was the, somewhat of a failure to criticize Russia and Putin. He was tough on North Korea and on Iran, but who was behind North Korea and Iran, China and Russia in certain ways, at least they're friendly to them and have helped them out, uh, both diplomatically and in other ways. And I thought a tougher line, especially on Russia, given the whole controversy about Russia's uh, interference in our election, uh, that the silence on Putin was telling it's consistent with Trump's general attitude, which is to be much more pro-Putin or less anti-Putin than someone like me would wish. So now we've had the General Assembly speech. Before that, we had the Afghanistan um, speech. Um, And then there was the speech that Trump gave in Poland. Um, Those, I think, are the sort of the three major foreign policy addresses that uh, the president has given. Is there anything shaping up as a coherent or maybe even not so coherent, but something that you could call a Trump doctrine? I think it's awfully early, and so much of that does depend on real facts. Trump, I think in the speech, even yesterday, at the UN sort of talked about it. We're increasing our defense, our military, stronger than it's ever been. We haven't yet increased defense spending. We Trump signed off on a continuing resolution that keeps defense spending where, where it was for the next three months. Now, maybe we'll, his budget proposed an increase. Let's see if we get it. Trump has some tendency to, to uh, conflate what he hopes will happen and what he's even proposed to happen or said should happen with what's happened already. And so, again, foreign policy especially, I think, is is sort of very susceptible to real-world tests. So I don't think there's that much of a Trump doctrine, but uh, I can see some of these policies working out well, really, for the better. I can see some of them not working out well. And if, if the bluster isn't packed up by intelligent and strong action, for example, you could end up worse than if you'd never blustered at all. The one thing I'll say in Trump's defense, and I think this is important to remember, is that Obama left him, President Obama left him a, a bad hand. I mean, we were not, we were weaker than we were when President Obama took over. We were retreat in several parts of the world, uh, not just the terrible Syrian civil war and other places where it's obvious that things were disastrous, but in terms of Iran, Korea, Russia, they were getting away with China. They were getting away with things I think they wouldn't have four or eight years before. So I, it's tough to reverse that. And whether Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Scott Walker or anyone else had been president, it would have been tough. So I think it's important to say this is a a challenging world that any American president would have faced. In that respect, I I cut Donald Trump a little more slack. But I've also said, I mean, to the degree those three speeches turned out pretty well, that's because in a formal speech, the whole team works on them. And he now has a pretty good team. Now, that's partly because his original team got shaken up and uh, Flynn left and McMaster replaced him and Bannon's now out of the White House. Uh, I think Tillerson's the one big disappointment. I was never a big fan of that nomination. That was given to him by the foreign policy establishment types, uh, Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, and I think he has not been a, a particularly effective Secretary of State. But Mattis at Defense, Haley at the UN, Pompeo at CIA, General Kelly now, Chief of Staff, McMaster at National Security Advisor. Uh, you know, if you had come to me two years ago and said, X is going to be the Republican president, or even a Democratic president, I guess, and this is the team, I would have said, whoa, that's pretty, that's pretty good. So I think they have come through 
when they have a chance to, and they have a chance to come through more when it's a formal setting like this, where the process can produce speech drafts, where the meetings get set up. You know, it's, uh, Trump's a, uh, Trump can indulge some of his, you know, idiosyncrasies, sometimes his fantasies, sometimes his prejudices, more when he's just freelancing. One of the issues that festered under the Obama administration and has really worsened in the last six months is Venezuela. And uh, Trump did address Venezuela, but what options are there for the U.S. at this I mean, point? I don't know, honestly. I, I don't think I've looked closely enough to really have a terribly intelligent. I'm glad that he's outraged about it. He had a memorable line about it. This is socialism right. was working as it should, not failing, but, you know, unfortunately succeeding in impoverishing the country. Uh, maybe we sh- – I'm a little worried sometimes that Trump I – I do worry sometimes more than sometimes that Trump – thinks saying something like that is the equivalent of having a policy or acting. I'm not sure we're doing everything we should be doing with respect to Venezuela, but but I don't know, honestly. On your trip back, we're going to switch gears here, and uh, we're going to hear all about the coffee you had on the assault. Please tell me that you weren't drinking a pumpkin spice latte. Uh, No, I'm very anti-pumpkin spice, first of all. Friends on the substandard here are pro-pumpkin spice, right? That's why it's the substandard. Yeah, totally. I mean, that really is the decline. If you have standards, you stay that clear of all pumpkin spice anything. That is the decline of the West. And I, I got to talk <laughs> to Jonathan Last and those guys about that. I uh, No, I tweeted a couple of times about how well, a few weeks ago how glad, glad I was at the Acela, which is the train that goes from New York to D.C. or actually Washington to D- New York to Boston, um, now has Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which is an upgrade over there previously bad Acela or Amtrak coffee, whatever that was. I think they um, had uh, leftover Aeroflot coffee. I mean, God knows. So Dunkin' Donuts, you know, I, it's, I like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I mean, you can buy it now in supermarkets and stuff. Um, then I tweeted this morning, I was going to test. I had had Dunkin' Donuts coffee at Penn Station at, you know, 6.15 a.m., and I was going to test whether the, the Dunkin' Donuts coffee on the Acela was as good as the Dunkin' Donuts coffee that you get, presumably a little fresher. Uh, from the actual Dunkin' Donuts place, and I thought it was actually better at Penn Station. Not that many things are that good at Penn Station, but the, the coffee and donuts, there they, they seem to be able to manage. At least there wasn't sewage coming from the ceiling when you were we there. We shouldn't joke I about did. that. I mean, I, you know, it's, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, so I'm sort of imperfect. Not lifelong. I mean, grew up in New York. I'm obviously now a lifelong D.C. and Northern Virginia resident, but I've gone back so often I sort of feel like I'm in touch with New York. And if, Having grown up there on the west side and the 60s. I'm pretty impervious to the all the things, that, a lot of the things that put people off about New York. But yeah, Penn Station is not a good advertisement for the city. And you do think that, gee, I mean, people who kind of foreigners who come and you know this is like one of the central train stations in the U.S. Right? Mm-hmm. Must be a little bit horrified. And it once was, of course, one of the glories of the nation. This this train station. It was a crime against humanity that it was destroyed and and bulldozed. One of the most interesting proposals I've seen for how to deal with the um, renovation of the dismal thing that is the current Penn Station is to go back and take the original plans and simply rebuild the old Penn Station. Wow. I guess they're also talking about, again, people who know New York will know this, the the grand old post office building, which was the central post office in New York, maybe still is, is across the street, across 8th Avenue, and maybe they're going to make that kind of the the central, what do you call it, the waiting area and sort of uh, check-in area at Penn Station, uh, ticket purchasing area and so forth. Grand Central, I guess they were going to knock down Grand Central after Penn Station. And one reaction to the knocking down of the old Penn Station and the building of the new is that Grand Central got preserved. And it does still have that 
I mean, if you go downstairs where the actual trains come, a lot of them it's fairly, you know, it's a train station, what can you do? But the upstairs part at least has a certain dignity and grandeur appropriate for a great country like ours. So maybe the uh, public, that is something where conservatives, just to be semi-serious for 30 seconds, probably have been a little bit uh, off, you know, uh, missed the mark. I think part of being a conservative is we, we prefer the private sector. We don't want to waste a lot of money on government buildings. But there is something to be said for the certain kind of dignity and sort of just, uh, de- you know, kind of quality, let's say, of public buildings. And we're going to have some public buildings after all. And you really don't want to look, them to look like a third world country. One of the things, though, about Dunkin' Donuts, to get back to the coffee, is that uh, Dunkin' Donuts is is um, considering dropping the donuts from it, its name, which always seemed to me odd because if they're up against, if they're trying to be kind of the working man Starbucks and they're competing in some way with Starbucks, the one thing they kind of had going for them is Starbucks pastry is terrible. Right. And Dunkin' Donuts, the donuts are, you know... Donuts. I, know. I shouldn't eat as many as I do, but I like them. Um, I know. Well, this is probably some brilliant marketing person who told them the coffee is the growth area. People know your donuts are not good for you. People eat fewer of them. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, I, I don't really understand that. Why it is actually startling while we're while we're discussing different brands here, and probably maybe we shouldn't be. We'll get sued or something like that. But you know, why is Starbucks pastry so bad? It's, it seems like they should be able to. There must be a massive, huge purchaser of these things. They presumably could insist on whatever quality they want from their providers and vendors, right? But they, they it's strikingly inferior, I would say. Yeah, which is why they, be a good they article, price them so low. Oh, yeah. wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Capitalism. The markets do not always work perfectly. This is a market imperfection, in my opinion. <laughs> Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us this week on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear podcast comes from The Great Courses Plus. One of our greatest joys is the pursuit of knowledge, learning more about the world around us, exploring new interests. That's what makes The Great Courses Plus so valuable. They find the brightest minds from the top 1% of professors in America and make them accessible in their video lecture series. Subscribe to The Great Courses Plus and you get unlimited access to stream and download thousands of videos on a wide variety of topics, history, politics, music, art, and much more. And right now, as one of our podcast listeners, you can start watching The Great Courses Plus for free. You might want to check out one of the courses I've enjoyed, The Modern Political Tradition. It's a terrific introduction if you're new to political philosophy and a worthwhile refresher course if you're an old hand. The Great Courses Plus are giving Weekly Standard podcast listeners a great way to find out just how valuable the programs are. An entire month of unlimited access to watch any of their lectures for free. All you need to do to get this special offer is to sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com standard. Start your free month today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for the Crystal Clear Podcast this week. Be sure to catch the Crystal Clear Podcast every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton.